Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, this morning we are going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and when you get there, I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we approach your word, God, I pray that you would comfort us. I pray that you would convict us of sin we are harboring. God, I pray that you would challenge us to love the people around us. Lord, I'm well aware this morning from our text, from my study, that, that I am inadequate, that this, this book, this truth, is far bigger than anything that I can understand. And Father, this morning we pray that you would teach us from your word, that our, our hearts uh, would, would be made more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in high school, uh, a guy who was a couple years older than me kind of got a, a quick rise to evangelical fame or anti-fame, depending on which side you were on. He made a video of a spoken word called, Why I Love Jesus But Hate Religion. And in that spoken word, he, he made the distinction where he said, Jesus says done while religious, religion says do. And this morning, I would submit to you that while Jesus has said done, Jesus also says do. That Jesus has given us clear commands to follow. That he has given us things to do based in what he has done. And so this morning, as we continue our series looking at the, the different commitments of the local church, 
we approach Jesus' message that the church is to be salt and light. Now, I want to make a distinction at the beginning because I don't want us to miss this. I want to make a distinction between salt and light and the Great Commission because next week we will hear uh, about the Great Commission. We'll hear what Christ has called us to do in making disciples. But this morning, I want us to note that Christ gave us both of these things. And so Christ has called us to the Great Commission, but he has also called us to be salt and light. And in the history of the church, it would seem that people have tended to act and teach in extremes on this. People have tended to act and, and teach not in a healthy middle, but finding one and sticking to it at the neglect of the other. Many people have said things like, I share the gospel so I don't have to worry about salt and light. Because sharing the gospel is my thing. And tempted to only share the gospel and not show love to the people around them. Others have said, I just want to live out the gospel so that by the way that I live my life, people will, you know, realize that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And that often leads into being apologetic for sin. It leads into being unclear about the truth of Scripture. And I would submit to you that neither of these things are the God-ordained way, but rather that Christ has called us to both. And what I'm not saying is preach the gospel, use words if necessary. What I'm saying is daily live out the realities of the gospel and preach the gospel when we're afforded the opportunity. We could view this salt and light command that Jesus gives us really as, as pre-discipleship actions. These are things that God has given to us for, for pre-discipleship. And this morning as we jump into the word, I want to open by, by framing this message in two ways. First, to recognize that this teaching is hard. There are sermons that are easy to preach. And this is not one. Jared Wilson says that many preachers stop short in their sermon preparation because they read the text, but they don't let the text read them. And this morning, I have to confess to you that this text has hit me this week. That I had to repent as I studied the words of Christ. That I had to confess my sin. And so this morning, I want to frame it that way because I want you to know that this comes from a heart of love. That this comes from a spirit of, of, of feeling this text this week as well. I want to frame it in another way as well. My desire is to be exceptionally clear. And so if I'm reading, that's why. So this morning we approach Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus has begun the Sermon on the Mount. He's begun it with the Beatitudes, this list of commands that should be true of believers in Christ, this promises that accompany those commands. And in this section we just read follows those commands. Beatitudes. This morning, if you're taking notes, our sermon in ascendance is that we have been saved and placed in the world so that we can be agents of preservation and illumination in the world and point people to the Father. I'm going to say that again. We have been saved and placed in the world so that we can be agents of preservation and illumination in the world and point people to the Father. And I want to do this by asking four questions. First question I want to ask is, who are we? Who are we? 
you look at verse 13 and also at verse 14, Jesus makes this statement where he says, you are the salt of the earth, or you are the light of the world. So we have to ask the question, who is the you? Well, to understand that, we have to go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, where, Jesus said, where it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and the scene here is the disciples are close, and there's crowds probably gathering around, but the disciples are there, and Jesus is teaching them. He's giving commands to his disciples. And this morning, this command has come to all of us. This is not just a command for all people. It's specifically a command for all believers. It is definitely a command to all of us. And Jesus, after he sits down... It says in verse 2 that he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He gives all these beautiful, fantastic statements to tell us that we are the ones who have realized that we are morally bankrupt. We are the ones who have been confronted by the realities of our sin. We are the ones who have found our only hope in Christ. We are the ones growing in grace, hungering more for Christ. We are the ones who are showing mercy, making peace, and living holy lives. And he says, since you are in me now, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Since we are in Christ, we have been called to be like Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the sense of the word you here is, is to think of it as you and you alone. God's design is for his followers to be the agents of preservation and illumination in this world. Nobody else. And honestly, who could do it better? We are the ones who've, who are entrusted with the hope of the gospel. We come strapped with the truth of God's word everywhere we go. We can infiltrate the places that we live, that we go, that we are with the love and power of Christ. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. There's no one else. This is responsibility he says, is ours. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But notice that that you, although it is you and you alone, it isn't all encompassing you to the church, to the disciples. These are not optional suggestions for the most Christ-like among us. These are, these are commands to be obeyed by all of us. Because we are truly the only ones capable. We know more about life and joy and wisdom than anyone else in all of the world. Do you believe that? Like we know more about life and wisdom and joy than anyone else. I was reminded this week, on Wednesday, sitting down with a guy, and we were studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it, it just, 
stopped me when I read verse 26 to 31 where he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring of nothing that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have been given this wisdom and joy and life. We know these things better than anyone else. So we are more capable and prepared to be the salt of the earth in the light of the world than anyone else. Commentator says, the ordinary Christian, though he may never have read any philosophy at all, knows and understands more about life than the greatest expert who is not a Christian. Or maybe we come to a text like this and we think to ourselves, this is for those high-class Christians, the ones who are far more holy than me. I can't do this. First, this morning, the thing that I had to grapple with this week is that, that Jesus is speaking to us, to all of us. That there's not a magic formula. That you can be salt and light on a soccer field. You can be salt and light on the sideline with the other moms and dads. You can be salt and light at work making money to pay for soccer. Christ has called us and dispatched us into this world not to do anything necessarily crazy, but to live our lives as believers among people who aren't. So that's who we are. Second, we have to ask the question, where are we? If you look at the text, it says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We've been saved and given a task and so we're dispatched into the world to complete this task. And these statements from Jesus affirm what we already know about the world. This is first a negative statement. Because the world is in need of salt. Because the world is in need of light. Because the world is decaying. Meat that is in need of salt is meat that left on its own will rot and decay. And the earth that we walk is the same way. Because of the evil effects of sin, the earth is in a continual state of decay. We know this. Sin abounds. Sin is glorified. Murder is applauded. Hatred is justified. Pride is nourished. Lust is encouraged. You walk out of these doors and we are bombarded with sin. But not sin that is talked bad about. Sin that is enjoyed. Sin that is glorified. The world is in decay, but the world is also in darkness. Just as the lamp exposes the darkness of a room, we see the world living in darkness when it is illuminated by the light of Christ. See, because we get this. We know this. We know the true life and light that is in Christ. And we go out into a world where people are thinking that sex is actually the thing that gets you the most joy. That power is actually the thing that will make you satisfied. That money, if you get enough of it, is actually what will keep you happy. That fame is actually the best kind of person to be as a famous person. But we know better. 
We know that in Christ is true light and true life. But this isn't new. We don't walk into a world that other Christians haven't dealt with. The believers of all ages haven't seen. The, the Bible says that the world has been this way for most of its history. That ever since Adam doubted God's word and disobeyed his command, the world has been spinning in a downward spiral of death and decay and darkness. Adam's own sons introduced murder into this world. Just one generation down the line, the Old Testament is full of examples of the spiral of sin. From the flood to the Tower of Babel, to Sodom and Gomorrah, to slavery in Egypt, to idolatry. Christ has given us a responsibility to this world. We just have the one. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus has placed this section right after the Beatitudes. Because listen to our temptation, right? Our temptation is to see the Beatitudes and be like, this is a long list of things that I should be. I, I need to be holy. So I need to separate from the world so that I can be holy. Throughout Christian history, groups have done this. But this is not Christian. This is anti-Christian to, 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 to get out of the world. The reality of the Christian life is that it must be lived in front of non-Christians. We're tempted, I think, to create what some people have called holy huddles, in which we say that it is best for my holiness if I have only Christian friends, if I only go to Christian places and I shut myself off from the world. Yet Jesus, right after saying, blessed are the pure in heart, said, you are the salt of the earth. I feel this in my own life, which is part of why I feel it so much, because the reason that I'm standing before you today is because in my life, for the past three years as a youth pastor, I had created a holy huddle. I had shut myself off from lost people. Only Christians came through my door of my house. I had developed relationships with only believers. wasn't eating with people who didn't have a relationship with Christ. I was, wasn't having them over. I wasn't sitting with them at community events. I had just created myself this huddle of people who were believers who could build me up in my holiness and praise God for that. But one of the reasons that now I, I'm not a youth pastor and I teach 11th grade English is because God didn't call me to a holy huddle only. Jesus never told us to withdraw from the world because the place God has planted us needs to see his power transforming us. The place that he has given to us to live and to be and to interact is a place that needs to see his power transforming us. So what does this look like? Well, it, it looks like going to your neighbor's house and having them over for dinner, inviting them over, especially if they're unbelieving. It means our children playing in city sports leagues for the purpose of developing relationships with unbelieving people around, who live around this church. It looks like inviting an unbelieving coworker out to lunch, deciding that you might want to go to the assisted living facility down the street 
and ask the director what we as a church or what you as a family or what you as an individual can do to serve them. The world is quickly decaying and fumbling around in darkness. But we are the people given the task of living the Christian life in front of them. Us. No, no other. So we've answered the question, who are we? We've answered the question, where are we? Third, the question is, what are we called to be? Verse 13 tells us that you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14 says you are the light of the world. In order to complete the task, we must know exactly what it means to be salt and light. First, we are those who preserve. Christians have been dispatched into the world to preserve it, to enter the dying, the festering, the broken world, to be agents of preservation, spreading the values and glory of Yahweh. But in order to understand what this does mean, I think we have to take a step back and say, first, what does this not mean? Because I need to make sure that what, that what I'm doing is in line with what Christ has called me to do. And I would say, first of all, this is not a social gospel in which we believe that we're making the world a physically, mentally, or emotionally better place and that that is enough. The social gospel says people have dignity, so work to make their lives on earth better. The true gospel says people have dignity, so work to... To work to make their lives better on earth as a means to tell them about the eternal life that's offered to them in Christ. It's not a social gospel, but it's also not making sure everybody knows which candidate we voted for and who we hate. The call to be salt is not a call to virtue signaling. It's not a call to use our Facebook pages as a platform for continually bashing one fallen person or one fallen idea. We have to be careful of this. Many preachers in my past and maybe in your past have used this text to perform an exposition on salt instead of an exposition on the text. And this morning, I don't want to do that. I don't believe Jesus' intent for us is to look at this text and think about all the ways that we use salt in our lives and find a connection to the church. I don't think we're called to look and say that we are the healers of the world or that we are the ones who clean the world or that we are the ones who keep the world from slipping on the black ice of sin. I don't think that's who we are. I think that this means in its historical context that in the first century, since the refrigerator had not been invented, people used salt to preserve meats that would otherwise be rotten in the warm, humid elements. Salting down meat was a process that, that they used to keep it from ruining. But often, salt was impure. It was mixed with things like sand, which is why Jesus says here, how shall its saltiness be restored if it's lost its taste? Because often salt was mixed with things it wasn't pure we, don't, we didn't have salt shakers like we did today, and so it was rendered weak and not good for anything if it was impure. And so with that historical context in mind, we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be the preservative of the world? And I think there are three ways in which we are the salt of the earth. First, by our holy conduct, we combat the festering decay of the world around us. 
By our holy conduct, we, we combat the festering decay of the world around us. What does this mean? Well, the first command given by Yahweh in the Old Testament is to love God with all that we are. And when we love the Lord with all that we are, with everything that is in us, we will be made more like Christ. Because here's the reality. The world does not need Christians to look more like them. It needs Christians to look like Christ. The world needs to know that we are distinct from them. Israel said we will marry the other people so that they can experience the goodness of God, and instead Israel was lured away from that God. Christians throughout history have said we will relax the commandments of Christ in order to make the gospel more palatable, and over and over and over again is ruined and is ended in ruin and death. When we begin to say to the world, just as Satan said to Eve, did God really say we have lost our saltiness? If we look like the world around us and fail to be distinct, we have no power to change the world. The people around you, not only in the church, but outside the church, need your holiness. We need it for each other, but, but the people around us need it too. And this works out both personally and corporately. Personally, like we don't have chances to share the gospel if no one knows that we believe it. Corporately, we've seen in recent times that, that the seeker-sensitive movement, it didn't work. Making the church look more like the world didn't work. Because the Bible is our standard. And our stance on sin and holiness and truth cannot change because it hasn't changed. So by our holiness, we show the distinction, our distinction from the world. But second, by our loving interaction, we show the world the true love that has been shown to us. And this is the part where I had to do a lot of repenting. Because the reality is that the Father loves sinners. How do I know this? Because he loves me. Christ loves sinners. He healed them. He wept for them. He died for them. And if this is true, if it's true that the Father loves sinners, and if it's true that Christ loves sinners, and we are called to be like Christ, then we must love sinners. And Christ has called us to that. And James seems to say that having real love for people leads to action. James 2, 15 and 16 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? If we love someone, we're going to put action behind that. I want to be exceptionally clear. Not political. I'm not calling us to a certain kind of policy. I'm not calling us to a certain kind of candidate. I'm calling myself and us to do what Christ has called us to do. I fear that in an effort to maintain Christ-centered biblical fidelity and reject agendas that we may conceive to be moralistic, liberal, or progressive, we have oftentimes and sometimes thrown the baby out with the bathwater. 
and forgotten that Jesus gave real moral commands for his church to follow. It is no accident that after the first commandment, God gave the second, said to be like it, that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus did not tell us the parable of the Good Samaritan simply because he is the better Samaritan, although he is, who rescued us from being left for dead and gave us new life. He gave us the parable of the Good Samaritan because he expects us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Loving neighbor is not less than sharing the gospel with others, but surely it includes more. James didn't write religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father as this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world because it sounded interesting. He wrote it because a natural outworking of the gospel in us is love and care for the least of these around us. If we love people, we'll begin to care about the things that they care about. Sarah McCullough cares nothing about the NBA or the Memphis Grizzlies. But you know who she does care about? Me. You know what she does, you know, sometimes fake? Care for the Memphis Grizzlies. So by our loving interaction, we show the world that true love that has been shown to us. It is not less than sharing the gospel, but it includes more. And then third, by our joyful disposition, we display the benefits of being kept in Christ. Part of preserving with salt is also enhancing flavor. In Christ, as we are the salt of the earth, we're actually showing the world what true life, real life is like. like we get this chance. Like we have plenty of reason for joy in Christ. And we get this chance to, to show the world what true joy that actually lasts, that isn't fake, like looks like. Because we have been brought from death to life. We have been saved from the depths of our sin. We have been adopted into the family of God. We have been given the comforter. We have been promised that the God will finish what he started in us. We have the hope of this gospel that one day all will be made right. And we get to enjoy Christ's presence forever. Therefore, part of our saltiness is the joy that is contagious. So that when everything is going right, it is not that our circumstances have given us joy. But also so that in the midst of difficulty, the lost people in our lives ought to be able to look at us and say, surely their Christianity is real because their joy is unshakable. So we ask the question, if this is saltiness, if this is what God has called us to, why does it say that if salt has lost its taste, how, how does one lose this saltiness? Well, first, I think we lose our saltiness when we cease to care for the holiness in our own lives and in the lives of believers around us in an effort to be more accessible. Relaxing the commands of God has never ended in us being more salt to the earth. But I also think that we lose saltiness when we fail to show love in an effort to feel more correct. 
and we lose saltiness when we substitute true joy in Christ in an effort to put on a perfect facade. When we refuse to show reality and in place put something that's fake. So we are the salt of the earth. That means we are those who preserve. But we are the light of the world. That means that we are those who expose and illuminate. So just like salt, I want to start with what this is not. Because I think there, there are some misconceptions in my own heart. That being the light is not making it our first priority to call out the darkness around us. Now notice I was careful in how I said that. Being the light is not making it our first priority to call out the darkness around us. I do believe there is a place for calling out evil and atrocity, but I do not believe it is the believer's first priority because our first priority is to preach the gospel, not to denounce every sin publicly. We should be people, first and foremost, known by who we love not and what we love, not by what we hate. We should be known by who we love, namely God and people, and then let that love inform the things that we hate, sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes an interesting argument, and I want to be careful with it, so I'm going to read it directly. The primary task of the church is to evangelize and to preach the gospel. Look at it like this. If the Christian church spends most of her time in denouncing communism, it seems to me that the main result will be that communists will not be likely to listen to the preaching of the gospel. If the church is always denouncing one particular section of society, she is shutting the evangelistic door upon that section. If we take the New Testament view in these matters, we must believe that the communist has a soul to be saved in exactly the same way as everybody else. I don't know how many people you work with are struggling with communism, Not many people I work with are. But we we could replace that word with a few things. People don't need our relaxation of the truth, but they also don't need our hatred. The church today is not spending its time calling out communism. That would be strange. But we can fill in any of our nation's popular sins. The woman who has had an abortion needs to know that both the sin of murder is serious and that Christ died to make her free from the bondage of sin. The man in a homosexual relationship needs to know that both that his sin is hated by Almighty God and that the same God loves him and desires a relationship with him. We can't relax that truth and we cannot hate those people. I I had to pause and ask for forgiveness here and repent. Because we can be tempted on either side. But being the light is not also not hypocritically practicing righteousness in front of other people while neglecting it in our secret and personal lives. This is exactly what Jesus teaches A chapter later in Matthew chapter 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This habit of 
of creating this facade where we look perfect on the outside and, and are not honest about our sin on the inside is hurting our witness, not helping it. So that's what being the light is not. Well, what is being the light? First, we are lights of the world because of the true light in the world. It is only in Christ that we have been made lights of the world. We didn't get it by our own merit. This is our hope, our power, our purpose, and our example that, that John 1 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. I am not the light. We are not the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which give light, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He was in the world. The world was made through him. And those who believe in his name become children of God. All of the light within us flows from that great light. Because we have no light inherently in us. It is all a gift from him. And so we are lights because of the great light. We are lights to expose the darkness around us. I want you to notice the examples that Christ uses here. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Both of these examples involve lighting up darkness. But you know what I'm guilty of doing? Walking into the dark room of the world and saying, man, sure is dark in here. I think it's darker than it was five years ago, ten years ago. Have you looked around? It's really dark. Jesus didn't call us to comment on how dark it was. He called us to turn on a light. He doesn't say yell at the darkness each time you notice it getting darker or curse the darkness because it is so dark. He says light a lamp. He says a city on a hill. He says let your light shine. We do good works because of Christ's good work in us, but we do good works also so that the people around us will see Christ's effect on us. The reason that the church is a compelling community is that others look at our conduct, at our love, at our joy, and they say there is something different about those people. We're lights in the world to expose the darkness. We're also lights in the world to lead people out of the darkness. Because light's not only good for providing a way to see, light is, light is good for helping us move about and find our way. The purpose of our good works is to give us opportunities to share the gospel. When people see our faithfulness day in, day out, they'll be convicted. We can seek them out. They can seek us out. What makes us different? We'll be able to share the good news of Christ. Finally, we are lights of the world to show the world the true light. Verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Good works should not puff up. Because good works are designed to point people to the Father. When we are obeying the Father and doing good works, we are communicating to the lost world around us that, number one, Christ is worthy. That sin is ugly. And that Christianity is more than a Sunday morning social club, that it is life. And so we have to ask the question, finally, fourth, how do we specifically live this as Mercy Hill Church? Because this is great, right? This is from Jesus. It's good. But how do, we, how do we put this into practice in our context, in our lives? If we're going to be salt and light in our neighborhood, in our area, then we must know what it looks like. And so first, it looks like a commitment to holiness. The salt must remain salty. It means a commitment to holiness at work. It means a commitment to holiness in front of our families. It means a commitment to holiness in line at Taco Bell when they are taking forever. Right? It's a commitment to loving the people we meet. John 13, 35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We've got to love each other, but then we also have to love the people around us. I think... Mercy Hill is aiming to do both of those things, to, to serve men in prison, to serve mothers at a pregnancy care center. We have to be committed to loving the people we meet, even if they don't look like us, even if they don't act like us. Third, a commitment to bold living and bold sharing of the gospel. He says, you don't put a light under a basket. Our commitment to holiness is a doorway for the message of the gospel, and we have to be bold about it. Finally, a commitment to the place we are planted, a commitment to DeSoto County, a commitment to Olive Branch, a commitment to our area. God has placed us not by accident, or he doesn't do anything by accident. He has placed us deliberately, sovereignly in this place. We have a responsibility to it. I want to close in this way. This sounds daunting. I'm literally, my legs are shaking, right? This is difficult. It makes us feel inadequate, and the truth is, it's because we are. Because it was never meant for our power anyway. Because Christ is conforming us to his image. Because the Spirit is empowering our Christian life, and we live in that power to live holy lives, to, to love the people around us, to boldly live and share the gospel, and to commit to the place where God has planted us for His glory.